justliberty.org. It's good for you and it's good for me. Justliberty.org. Justliberty.org. Hi, this is Amanda Marzullo. A man stole a live shark from the San Antonio Aquarium last month and carted it out of the building in a baby carriage. Scott, doesn't this story sound a little fishy to you? In my defense, the first part of the plan went (laughs) swimmingly. We got the shark home and he clearly loved his new digs, but then the authorities came in to repossess him. I think it was a lone shark. (laughs) The Wall Street Journal last month reported that more rich people are keeping sharks for pets in elaborate home aquariums. Was that your plan? In part, or perhaps I should say fin part. In fact, I was fin-spired by the Austin Powers movie, Goldmember, and ever since then I've dreamed of outfitting sharks with lasers attached to their head. But eventually we were going to set it free. I I remember being at the beach once and seeing a man running out of the water yelling, Help! Shark! Help! And and I laughed at him because there's no way that shark was ever going to help him. (laughs) But if that shark had had a laser, the fun would have continued long after the guy made it onto the beach. So that's why I knew this was something we had to test in the wild, and it it would have been a sea change, I think. (laughs) Oh, I'm sure. It sounds like you jumped the shark. We didn't, but we were planning to. The motorcycle ramp was nearly set up when the cops busted through the door. (laughs) Hello, boys and girls. Welcome to the Better Late Than Never August episode of the Reasonably Suspicious Podcast, covering Texas criminal justice, politics, and policy. I'm Scott Henson, Policy Director at Just Liberty, here today with our good friend Mandy Marzullo, who's Executive Director of the Texas Defender Service and an avid fish woman. Right? Uh, Yeah. We'll we'll say that. (laughs) <laughs> All right. <laughs> Coming up, stick around for my interview with Texan treasurer Pamela Koloff, a writer whose work became nearly synonymous with Texas Monthly, but who now writes for ProPublica and in the New York Times Magazine. Her recent Times Magazine story blew the lid off the pseudoscience of forensic blood spatter evidence, and she's here to tell us all about it. That's not all, though. We've got a great show today, even if we missed Shark Week with that intro. Discussing junk science, journalism, and everybody's favorite pastime, standing in line at the driver's license office. So, Mandy, what are you looking forward to on the podcast today? <laughs> well, I think it's safe to say that the DRP is always going to be my favorite thing to talk about. So, I'm looking forward to that. Me too. Well, that, that gets us into our first story then. Why don't you yeah. get into it? So, our top story involves the massive lines at the Texas Department of Public Safety driver license mega centers and how to fix them. Recent news reports documented lines of up to eight hours at the biggest so-called mega centers with lines stretching outside the buildings in the summer heat. Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick blames drivers who are eligible to renew their licenses online. But on your blog, Grits for Breakfast, you argued that the legislature had created the problem. So, Scott, what's going on? Well, this really is at root a budget problem and a problem with basically several programs that are causing massive dysfunction at the DPS license centers. One of the biggest problems they have is their customer service center. 24,800 people call DPS every day about their driver's licenses, and only 20% of those calls are ever answered. And of those, only 17% of those people, of the, of the 20%, get a human being on the line within 10 minutes. And all this is because they're not funding these DPS call centers. That's insane. So obviously all these thousands of people who are calling every day when they can't get anyone on the line eventually go into the license center because what else would you do 
And so underfunding that is one of your core problems. There's all sorts of little requirements that really just make no sense. So, for example, sex offenders have to renew their driver's license every year. Why? They already have to register and so their license changes are up to date and all. There, there's no sense in it. But it's just some another, another thing you can do to shame them, just another goofy requirement. But the biggest problem, and the one that no one's really talking about right now in the public debate, are driver's license uh, revocations. So you and I first met working to try and get some relief for the driver responsibility program and these terrible high surcharges that people have to pay. Well... The Washington Post reported earlier this year that more people have had their driver's licenses revoked in Texas, 1.7 million, than any other state, Mm -hmm. and most of them were through the driver responsibility surcharge. So all those people just constantly are in need of renewing their driver's license or trying to get DPS to come get them onto a payment plan or anything that can give them some relief. And having to deal with all those folks creates this massive wave of extra bodies that otherwise would never go in. Yes, more people should renew online. Someone could probably tell them that if anyone would pick up the phone at DPS. <laughs> yeah. But all these people who can't pay, to me, are the big source of it all. Yeah. I mean, is there data published anywhere? I mean, it sounds like probably not. DPS revokes about half a million driver's licenses a year. Okay. And some of those people get them back. Some of them go into this long-term group that have just gone, in many cases, for more than a decade now yeah, without without a license because they can't pay their driver responsibility surcharges. They just keep cycling and accruing additional fees for not driving without a valid license. Right. So, so really, at the at root, it's the failure to abolish the driver responsibility surcharge, the failure to fund the customer service center, the senseless requirements for annual sex offender renewals and and other categories that have to renew more often than necessary. And then finally, using driver's license revocations as a punishment for non-payment of debt. That's at root what's driving the volume, I think. And DPS hasn't come out with that data. But when you look at the broad swaths, it has to be a big chunk of the problem. Yeah, and a labor-intensive aspect of the problem, too, right? If, right, right. If you have a revocation documenting your income, documenting that you need a payment plan and being put on one, that's all a massive amount of paperwork. Sure, or documenting that you're indigent. That's never easy to do just standing in line at the DPS. You never have the right piece of paper, you know. Yeah. You, usually, yeah, how do you prove the negative, right? Like, you don't have any income. No one's giving you, a, you know, a receipt for that. That's, that's right. <laughs> that's right. Your lack of a paycheck did not come with a stub. <laughs> so, you know, there are, there are a lot of deep issues here, and hopefully the legislature will take another look at this. Hope so. The Texas prison system last year responded to dramatic understaffing at certain rural units by giving hiring bonuses for people willing to work at short-staffed facilities. The Houston Chronicle's Carrie Blakinger reported that seven months into the program, quote, more units were severely underfunded than last fall when they started. 
So, Mandy, why do you think bonuses didn't work to get people to take jobs in small-town Texas, making in the low 30s, and working all day around convicted felons in unair-conditioned prison cells? <laughs> yeah, I have no idea why people aren't leaping out of their seats for these jobs. <laughs> but, I mean, really, at the end of the day, it's that these jobs are still really poorly compensated, right? Like, you know, even with the starting bonus, you're still making just marginally more than you would be flipping burgers. I think it comes out to something like $17 and change per hour. And then on top yeah, of that, pre-tax, yes. pre-tax. <laughs> and then on top of that, you know, these prison guards are working under conditions that are only marginally better, if that, than the conditions that were incarcerating people under. There's no air conditioning. The hogs have it better because they get air conditioning. That that's right, and that and that's a funny aspect of all this. That's what got the prison guards to join in the prison heat litigation, yeah. is when they built seven new facilities because they said that their hogs, the pigs that they used to get bacon at the at, for the prisons, or they would, sell the hogs. Actually. Would, or they sell them to wouldn't livestock. wouldn't breed properly unless they were in air conditioning. Well, this is just the most hysterical thing in the world to me because Texas has this massive problem with feral hogs all over the state who are breeding just fine in the 100-degree weather. There's no sure that there's so many hogs out there that they they literally passed a law, the pork chopper bill that said that you can shoot pigs from air from uh, aircraft from helicopters because there's so many of them they just need to get rid of them. So the idea that hogs can't you know, cuddle up and have sex properly without air conditioning is just a delightful claim to me. I, and it was too much for the prison guards. That's when they said, hey, we're going to that. That's enough. We're signing on to the litigation as well. Yeah, but we're talking about extreme heat, right? This is not just a, a little bit of heat. We're not like, you know, these are conditions that people will die under and have died and have died. Under. And, so, and a lot of the the prison units built during the Ann Richards era are these metal buildings too. I mean, you're almost like you're in an oven. So you are in an oven. So those, yeah. those are just some of the worst job conditions you could imagine. And so you're, you're right. You're basically saying how much are you willing to, to be paid? Just sit in prison mm -hmm. and $17 an hour sounds a little low when you think about <laughs> yeah, it. <laughs> you know, and then, you know, it's an unsafe, you know, you're under, you know, unsafe conditions, you know, there's a huge sort of interpersonal aspect to this that's really difficult. And, you know, then you're in an undesirable location on top of that. Not to say that rural po pockets of Texas aren't beautiful. Those but are beautiful places, but... They're depopulating. People yeah. are leaving there and moving to the urban areas of the state. That's just the fact. And they're not leaving there because they're great places to get a job. Yeah. Next up in our segment, Death in Texas, Texas courts are reconsidering scientific evidence in the conviction of death row inmate Robert Robertson to determine whether the shaken baby syndrome theory touted by prosecutors in his case can still be supported scientifically. The Texas Tribune's Jolie McCullough reported on the case, quoting his attorney declaring that only a trailblazing statute, which was passed by the Texas legislature in 2013, allowed his latest motion. Legislators were reacting to the contribution of forensic errors in the cases of DNA exonerees, as well as a report by the National Academy of Sciences in 2009 calling into question the scientific basis for many long-standing forensic methods based on subjective comparisons by an examiner. 
things like bite marks, ballistics, fingerprints, blood splatter evidence, um, all of which you kind of talk about later on with Pam McCullough. That's exactly right. Both Mandy and I worked on this bill at the Texas legislature, me when the bill first passed, and Mandy wrote heard on the bill on behalf of the Texas Defender Service when it was amended the following session. So Mandy, start us off. Shaken baby syndrome, blood spatter, bite marks. Talk to me for a moment about Mr. Roberson's case, but also the intersection of Texas junk science writ generally with the capital cases you see, which I'm guessing is pretty much all of them. <laughs> well, so... TDS is actually co-counseling with the Office of Capital and Forensic Writs in Mr. Robertson's case. So I can't talk too much about that. Okay. But what I will say is we are seeing quite a few capital cases be remanded. So often what's happening at this point is that people who have been on the road for a very long period of time are filing writs under the junk science statute and having hearings on their cases. So we're really just seeing sort of the first wave at this point, but it's sort of the parade of horribles that you see in other types of cases in the criminal justice system. We're seeing more than one shaken baby case. We're seeing cases where there is a purported child death that is probably not a homicide, but might not be a shaken baby's case, but something similar. And, you know, there's a bite mark case out there. Yeah, there's the the bite mark case. And I'm going to mess up this person's name. It's Kusul Chantukumane, I believe is how you would say his name. We'll go with that. I wouldn't have even dared try. (laughs) But, but, yeah, whoever's listening is working on that case. I'm sorry. For butchering the name. Yeah, I I did that. I know I did that. Yeah, his case has a bite mark, which, you know, clearly is circumspect. That's right. Even the prosecutor in the case ended up admitting that, well, okay, we probably shouldn't have relied on that one. (laughs) That's a problem. (laughs) (laughs) And, and, And also what's interesting, though, too, is that you are seeing a lot of instances where prosecutors are conceding error. Which, you know, I think is showing that we're moving the needle. Right. The science has sort of backed them into a corner on on some of these. You know, the the weird thing about these comparative sciences, and and there's a a distinction. So when you're matching DNA on a one-to-one basis, you have a sample and you have a a person you think is the suspect. And you're Mm -hmm. trying to see if this DNA sample matches them. That's a very solid, scientifically based way to identify someone. Often, They're, right? If you know how many sources are in That's right. Like, I'm saying the one-to-one, yeah, not no. the DNA mixtures, which we've talked about and have their own problem, but one-to-one DNA matching. Or toxicology, where you're asking a chemist to say, what is the chemical makeup of this? Is it a controlled substance? Is it a drug? Mm-hmm. These are things that there are actually scientific tests Four. That are validated and rec- replicable. Replicable, yes. Replicable. <laughs> but that, that, I'm just that, messing up all kinds of words today. Well, but that's exactly right. If I go to the doctor and the doctor does a test to see if I have a disease, the results of that test will be the same whether I have it done in Texas or whether I have it done in Maine. But who does your forensic analysis when you're talking about ballistics comparisons or fingerprints comparisons or blood spatter or bite marks Mm -hmm. um, or shaken baby, for that matter, really is much less scientific. Those are not things that a scientist has applied the scientific method and come up with these results. These are techniques that cops have developed over the decades and used to accuse people. Yeah, these are subjective. That's right. 
And, that, like this is a subjective conclusion that they're drawing. That that's exactly right. And so these comparative analyses are especially fraught. Um, the Shaken Baby is sort of its own novel example almost because it's such a recent example. There was a big rise in popularity of, of prosecutions based on this, and now a lot of those are being relooked at. Yeah, and I think that's another sort of disturbing thing that's coming up and sort of being revealed, excuse me, by the junk science writ, is that you know, the criminal justice system is composed of people. So it's going to have human error that's involved in it, but it's also going to have sort of this herd mentality that you see, you know, groupthink. It really that does. there really are trends, types of crimes that prosecutors sort of are looking for at any particular time. Well, that's exactly right. And We've talked before about forensic hypnosis, which is another discipline being challenged under the forensic science writ in Ex parte Flores. Well, as of the late 90s, this was an incredibly popular thing to be doing. There were about 800 people who were licensed at DPS as certified to do forensic hypnosis. Not 800 cases, ladies and gentlemen, 800 people That's right. using this technique. and or, or at least certified to use it. And now we're down to around 20. It, yeah. it has fallen out of favor. People aren't really willing to stand up in front of juries very often and saying, well, we hypnotized the witness. And afterwards, she said what we wanted. Well, that's yeah. n- not really believed anymore and by, by the general public. And so they don't want to use that evidence anymore. But it was so popular at the time. After the original case in the 80s that set it off and, and the legislature created an actual licensing certification mm-hmm. uh, for it, every department wanted to have one. It was a big fad. Yeah. You know, it relaxes people, Scott. Yeah. No, it's so we'll, we'll see what comes of it. I mean, really, at the end of the day, the junk science writ is still in its nascent phases. You right. know, there have really only been a handful of people that have gotten relief through this legal mechanism. So... We'll see what happens. That's right. And honestly, I'm not sure if it will ever be a source of mass relief, like where we see lots of people who've been falsely convicted getting relief, because there's so many other barriers to to getting your case there, getting it investigated, or getting a a set of experts to relook at it. What it's really doing is creating a vehicle where these junk sciences are being challenged for the first time. The judges are not doing a good job on Daubert hearings, or however we pronounce that. Um, <laughs> Daubert. Daubert, okay. They're not doing a great job excluding bad evidence on the front end, and so this is a way for the courts to take a post hoc look and correct old errors, and it really is almost the only way that these junk sciences are getting challenged. Yeah. her teeth as a Texas monthly feature writer focused on high-profile crime stories, Pam McAuliffe's long-term journalism projects are the stuff of journalistic legend in Texas. And her two-part 22,000-word offering on a 30-year-old murder conviction based on dubious blood spatter evidence may have cemented that reputation for good. Scott sat down with Pam recently to talk about her story, journalism, podcast, and more. Let's give it a listen. I sat down with ProPublica's Pam Koloff to talk about her recent long-form report on the cover of New York Times Magazine. 
The story described a 30-year-old Texas murder conviction based on dubious conclusions about blood spatter evidence that are still used in courtrooms today. Here's how she described the case. This is a story, uh, it's actually a Texas story, about a man named Joe Bryan, who is a beloved high school principal in Clifton, Texas, which is about a half hour west of Waco. And in 1985, uh, Joe's wife, Mickey, who was a also beloved local school teacher, was murdered in their home in her bed. And Joe had been at a principal's convention in Austin in the days leading up to and around this crime. And he's always contended he was in his hotel room asleep in bed uh, when this happened, which of course is an alibi that's hard to prove because no one was with him. Um, but there was no uh, th- there was no evidence linking him to the crime. There was no evidence even placing him in Clifton, Texas that night. Everyone saw him uh, in Austin. But he became, and it was initially believed to have been a break-in. All the indications in the house were that it was a break-in. He came under scrutiny when his brother-in-law, the victim's brother, uh, who had borrowed his car for the week, the car had been out of Joe's possession for for a number of days. The brother-in-law found uh, a flashlight in the trunk, or so he told the Texas Rangers, and it was uh, speckled with what appeared to be blood. And so began this uh, effort to connect the flashlight to the crime scene and therefore to Joe. And that's where bloodstain pattern analysis came in. Wow. On a flashlight. On a, on a flashlight that wasn't found at the crime scene. That we still are not sure if it's blood that's on it. That's one of the other fun facts of the story. <laughs> Um, but I had, I had been looking for a case for a while to write about that was about bloodstain pattern analysis, uh, which I can explain in a second. But this particular case just had a lot of narrative elements as well that I was interested in. Sure, the high school teachers. Yeah, I mean, it was this was a guy who, you know, had done no wrong, according to people in the town. But by the end of the first trial, people, you know, he had he had 36 character witnesses at his first trial, which I had never heard of happening in any trial ever before. But when the jury handed down a, a guilty verdict, as many people told me, they believed in law enforcement, they believed in the criminal justice system. And uh, if that's what a jury found, then he was guilty. Wow. So how did you get started on blood spatter? You said you'd been looking for a case to sort of be the central focus on that topic. What made you interested in this topic in the first place? Because that's a pretty obscure place for a journalist to say, hey, this is, this is going to be my area. I'm going to spend the next however many years of my life honing in on this topic. That, that, that's me. That's the kind of, kind of stuff I like. I know. Um, well, it was really through uh, Michael Hall. I know him as Mike. Mike Hall's writing at Texas Monthly about uh, junk forensic science and the Cameron Todd Willingham case that had uh, raised my consciousness, shall we say, about the problems with forensic science. And so broadly, I had been wanting to write about forensic science and the problems with it uh, in the courtroom. Michael, just to interject, had this amazing story on bite marks that has been incredibly influential and, and, like you say, has been one of the journalists who's just hitting it out of the park on these forensic topics every time if you have not read all of mike's stories go to the texas monthly archives and read them um so i 
when I was still working for Texas Monthly, I went and uh, covered a trial that I thought I was going to write about. And it's a very long story why I did not, that I will not go into. But I went and covered a trial in East Texas, a murder trial, in which uh, a man was accused of murdering his wife and stepson. Uh, and the, the issue in the case was had this man murdered his wife and stepson or had the stepson murdered his mom and then killed himself. And there was uh, what from photos looked to be a pretty classic uh, suicide scene of this teenager uh, with long gun between his legs and a single blast to his mouth. And um, it looked pretty straightforward to me. And so I I was interested in this case. So I went to cover it. And Tom Bevel, who's sort of the father of modern bloodstain pattern analysis, testified for the prosecution. And he said that by looking at the bloodstain patterns in the son's room where this shooting took place, that he could tell that this was a double homicide, that there was no suicide possible. And he gave his reasons for that. And then the defense presented their side of the case And they had a a former student of Tom Bevel's, who is a crime scene investigator out in in Smith and Wood County, not a bastion of liberalism, who who got up there and said this was this was a murder suicide. And the bloodstain patterns are telling me that it's a that that's what it is. So I'm sitting there watching all this and uh, was just fascinated. I just thought, how can two men with the same exact training literally they're they're going by the same literal book one trained the other one trained the other look at the same exact crime scene and come to two diametrically opposite conclusions and you know in watching the jury tom bevel who testified for the prosecution he's a fantastic witness he's very polished and very persuasive and it you know this is not a novel concept but i was struck by the fact that really the witness who was the most polished won the day not science right right well and uh, this thing where it's possible to have two supposed scientists look at something and come to the opposite conclusion that's a that's a weird thing about forensic science we're going to talk about that a little more in a moment well but i'm going to interrupt both of these guys sure. were law enforcement they weren't scientists and i, I thought right. that's what was so interesting was the word science kept science 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 the jury heard that over and over and over again and these are cops. There's no so scientist here. No, no scientist present. That's, right. a, that's exactly right. Well, in a lot of these uh, comparison-based forensics, really, that, that is the case. You know, it's not scientists looking at fingerprints or ballistics. It's just a cop who went through a bunch of training and then practiced. Right. Well, and, and as Tom Bevel explained in his uh, testimony in that East Texas case, he said, you know, before I, I do this, I read all the police reports. I get as much information as I can. I remember he faced the jurors when he told them this. And I could see that this resonated well with jurors. Like, oh, he really does his homework. You know, he really researches things before he, you know, this isn't just some quick thing. And, of course, I'm sitting there thinking. That's the opposite. Wow, if you had a DNA analyst get up there and say, you know, before I did my analysis, I got up and I read right. all the police reports, people would be horrified. But somehow for this type of forensic science, that was considered at least in my read of jurors' reactions, which could be wrong, though they did convict the man, uh, positive. 
For her report, Pam attended a 40-hour training for blood spatter experts in which she was given the same training and the same certificate proving it as so-called police experts who testify in cases. Let's hear her describe it. I have uh, 40 hours of training in bloodstain pattern analysis from a class that was taught by Bevel Gardner and Associates, Tom Bevel's company. And the expert witness in Joe Bryan's case had a 40-hour class with Tom Bevel. So my intent was... I'm going to get as much training as this expert witness had, and then I'm going to look at the evidence. Wow. And so tell us about this training. You went to Oklahoma for this. Is that right? Yeah. So it's at some point in my reporting on this case, I just had one of those light bulb moments that usually happens while sitting in Austin traffic, which takes up a lot of my day, which was the only way I'm going to really understand this is if I just go do it. And I wonder if I could get in one of the classes. And at the time, the Texas Forensic Science Commission, in fact, let me back up. The way I found Joe's case, I was looking for a bloodstain pattern analysis case. And the commission took up two cases in the past 18 months, I think for the first time within the discipline. And so I looked at both of them. Either one would have been a fascinating deep dive, but I picked Joe's case. But anyway, the commission was looking at the training of people who were testifying in Texas courtrooms. So there was a larger purpose also to going and doing this class. But I was interested, Bevel Gardner and Associates is one of, if not the sort of go-to private firms that teaches these classes. And Tom Bevel literally wrote the book on bloodstain pattern analysis that is quoted uh, by expert witnesses on the stand all the time. So I saw that they had an upcoming class in Yukon, Oklahoma, and I just like the sound of that also. So <laughs> I, I wrote to them and asked if, as a journalist, if I could take it. And I, you know, identified myself. I used my ProPublica email address and explained that I wrote about uh, criminal justice and wanted to understand this better. And they very graciously allowed me to take the class. Um, you know, I had to, in my experience, I, I, I've gone into those sort of trainings as a blogger. Yes. And they've let me do it. They're like, well, do you have $120? Yes. yes. <laughs> this was close to seven. This was uh, $655. Okay. So that... Yeah, but you got a certificate. But I... <laughs> <laughs> I did, though I will say, I didn't get to write about this, but the, the money side of this surprised me. So I was in a room full of guys who have taken a week away from their jobs where they're doing important stuff. These are crime scene investigators. They have, they're paying for a hotel room, a rental car, $655 to take the class, a per diem. Uh, that's all taxpayer money. And I found that to be very interesting. I didn't get to go into all that, but I was with about 20 folks in this class, almost entirely police officers. There were a couple forensic analysts from Oregon. There were people from all over in this class, which I thought was fascinating also. And we learned how to analyze and interpret bloodstains. So did you find it convincing? You, you, you had this incident where you, you watched trained people come to opposite conclusions. Did you now understand why each of them had come to those conclusions? And yes, is it, is, are there areas where there's just an inherent subjectivity here or what, what's going on? So there, there's so much and uh, I'll try to boil it down to the most important things, but everything from taking measurements, and this is why it was helpful to do it in a hands-on classroom. But when you're taking measurements with calipers 
there are tremendous variability in in the measurements you're doing that then have tremendous consequences when you're trying to reverse engineer a crime scene. So there were things just from the basic mechanics of how do you do this that were troubling to me to, I mean, the the ultimate thing that I found troubling was calipers with, with digital calipers. They they were, they were digital, but I mean, really you, even that it's, it's very interesting, very challenging the easy math errors that it's easy to make. We, we were told up front my first day that a 40-hour class would not make us experts. It would give us, I don't have the phrase exactly right, but we would know just enough to be dangerous, I believe was how our instructor put it. Uh, he said that several times during the week. So, And that really proved to be true because when you are comparing, when you're trying to identify a pattern, any kind of pattern, but in this case, a bloodstain pattern, you are, just to give an example, there are many cases in which people have been convicted because there is, quote, a high velocity bloodstain pattern on their t-shirt. The term high velocity has gone out of fashion, but generally speaking, that's what it's called. Because it's a bunch of bunk? And, and that's, that's a whole long other story. And what has been shown is actually what can look like that can be many other things, including someone who's dying aspirating blood. Mm. So the, the, these very tiny little droplets of blood aren't always caused by a person firing a gun over them. It can be them finding the body of the person who has just shot themselves or has been shot and cradling that person. I, I can't tell you how many cases I've looked at with this scenario with a spouse. Wow. Um, there's a, a case... Okay. Warren Horneck is a, a man, former uh, uh, Fort Worth police officer, who is convicted on this uh, on this evidence, who remains in prison. But anyway, when I saw how you could how how a bloodstain pattern that's caused by a gunshot can look nearly identical or identical to a bloodstain pattern that's caused by someone who's dying in aspirating blood, you can start to see the danger of this stuff. I'll publish my full conversation with Pam soon, in which she goes into even more detail about problems with blood spatter evidence and other comparative forensics, as well as her favorite criminal justice podcasts and journalism trends regarding how reporters cover criminal justice stories. Until then, check out her excellent two-part New York Times Magazine story. ProPublica even created a newsletter for the story in which Koloff is providing regular updates on court proceedings. So follow the story there if you're interested in more detail. Now it's time for our rapid-fire segment we call The Last Hurrah. Mandy, are you ready? I am ready. The governor says a recent study which showed that traffic injuries increase at red light camera intersections convinced him he should oppose red light cameras and seek to abolish them in the coming legislative session. Are you surprised? Very. Studies have been showing the same thing for years, but if this one finally convinced the governor, then welcome to the team. I'm I'm very happy to to hear it. The Texas Department of Criminal Justice told the Texas legislature that the $1.4 billion they spend on prisoner health care needed an additional 20% to achieve what their medical providers at UTMB and Texas Tech say are minimum standards for patient care. Do you think the legislature will pony up, Mandy? God, I hope so. Not doing so would be penny wise and pound foolish. You know, 
medical care in general is rising right now to the tune of 20% a year. So what we're talking about is just what they need to maintain what is a bare level of care. You know, what they need to keep someone alive, really, at the end of the day. So, you know, if they don't do this, then we're talking about massive Eighth Amendment violations, which are going to trigger a lot of pain and a lot of litigation. So I hope they do that just for people being safe. And at the end of the day, if they don't want to pay for medical care, then they have an alternative, which is to incarcerate fewer people. That's the one. While you were on the beach somewhere in Mexico this month, the Federal Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals declined to approve Judge Lee Rosenthal's would-be final ruling in the Harris County bail case. What's your takeaway? It's a huge step back. While it's great that defendants will now receive individualized hearings, the Fifth Circuit essentially said that it's not a constitutional violation if rich people are treated differently than poor people. So it's an important ruling, but it's really kind of a depressing one. (laughs) Uh, What do you expect? It's the Fifth Circuit, Scott. It really is. All right, we're out of time, but we're trying to do better the next time. Until then, I'm Scott Henson with Just Liberty. And I'm Amanda Marzullo with the Texas Defender Service. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or SoundCloud. We'll be back next month with another episode of the Reasonably Suspicious Podcast. Until then, keep fighting for criminal justice reform. It's the only way it's going to happen. And shout out to Amanda Woog on her new job as executive director at the Texas Fair Defense Project. We are thrilled to have you back. Yes, we missed you.